The writer of the Hebrews refers to the blood of an eternal covenant, chapter 13, verse 20. And since the plan of redemption is thus traced back into eternity, the plan to permit man to fall into the sin from which he was thus to be redeemed must also extend back into eternity. Otherwise there would have been no occasion for redemption. In fact, the plan for the whole course of the world's events, including the fall, redemption, and all other events, was before God in its completeness before he ever brought the creation into existence, and he deliberately ordered it that this series of events and not some other series should become actual. And unless the fall was in the plan of God, what becomes of our redemption through Christ? Was that only a makeshift arrangement which God resorted to in order to offset the rebellion of man? To ask such a question is to answer it. Throughout the scriptures, redemption is represented as the free, gracious purpose of God from eternity. In the very hour of man's first sin, God sovereignly intervened with a gratuitous promise of deliverance. While the glory of God is displayed in the whole realm of creation, it was to be especially displayed in the work of redemption. The fall of man, therefore, was only one part and a necessary part in the plan, and even Watson, though a decided Arminian, says, the redemption of man by Christ was certainly not an afterthought brought in upon man's apostasy. It was a provision, and when man fell, he found justice hand in hand with mercy. Out of the ruins of the fall, God has built a new spiritual creation far more glorious than the first. Consistent Arminianism, however, pictures God as an idle, inactive spectator sitting in doubt while Adam fell and as quite surprised and thwarted by the creature of his hands. In contrast with this, we hold that God foreplanned and foresaw the fall, that it in no sense came as a surprise to him, and that after it had occurred, he did not feel that he made a mistake in creating man. Had he wished, he could have prevented Satan's entrance into the garden, and could have preserved Adam in a state of holiness as he did the holy angels. The mere fact that God foresaw the fall is sufficient proof that he did not expect man to glorify him in continuing in a state of holiness. Yet God in no way compelled man to fall. He simply withheld that undeserved constraining grace with which Adam would infallibly not have fallen, which grace he was under no obligation to bestow. In respect to himself, Adam might have stood had he so chosen, but in respect to God it was certain that he would fall. He acted as freely as if there had been no decree, and yet as infallibly as if there had been no liberty. The Jews, so far as their own free agency was concerned, might have broken Christ's bones, yet in reality it was not possible for them to have done so, for it was written, A bone of him shall not be broken, Psalm 34, verse 20, in John 19, verse 36. God's decree does not take away man's liberty, and in the fall Adam freely exercised the natural emotions of his will. The reason for the fall is assigned in that God hath shut up all unto disobedience, that he might have mercy on all, Romans 11:32, And again, 
we ourselves have had the sentence of death within ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 1.9 And it would be difficult to find language which would assert the divine control and divine initiative more explicitly than this. For wise reasons, God was pleased to permit our first parents to be tempted and to fall and then to overrule their sin for his own glory. Yet this permission and overruling of sin does not make him the author of it. It seems that he has permitted the fall in order to show what free will would do, and then by overruling it, he has shown what the blessings of his grace and the judgments of his justice can do. It may be well just at this point to say something more about the nature of the fall. Adam was given a most favorable opportunity to secure eternal life and blessedness for himself and his posterity. He was created holy and was placed in a world free from sin. He was surrounded by all the beauty of paradise and was graciously given permission to eat of all the fruits with the exception of one which was certainly no irksome restraint. God himself came down into the garden and was Adam's companion. In unmistakably clear language, Adam was warned that if he did eat of the fruit, he would certainly die. He was thus placed under a pure test of obedience, since the eating would not in itself have been either morally right or wrong. Obedience is here set up as the virtue which, in the rational creature, is, as it were, the mother and guardian of all the others. 4. The Result of Adam's Fall But in spite of all his advantages, Adam deliberately disobeyed, and the threatened sentence of death was executed. This plainly includes more than the dissolution of the body. The word death, as used in the scriptures in reference to the effects of sin, includes any and every form of evil which is inflicted in punishment of sin. It means primarily spiritual death, or separation from God, which is both temporal and eternal, a loss of his favor in all ways. It meant the opposite of the reward promised, which was blessed in eternal life in heaven. It meant, therefore, the eternal miseries of hell, together with the foretastes of those miseries which are felt in this life. Its nature can be partly seen in the effects of sin, which have actually fallen upon the human race. And finally, the nature of the death which fell upon Adam and his descendants can be seen by contrast with the life which the redeemed have with Christ. It was a death which caused sin instead of holiness to become man's natural element, so that now in his unregenerate nature the gospel and all holy things are repulsive to him. He is as utterly unable to appreciate redemption through faith in Christ as a dead man is to hear the sounds of this world. That the death threatened was not primarily physical death is shown by the fact that Adam lived many years after the fall, while spiritually he was immediately alienated from God and was cast out of paradise. In his fallen state, man is terrified by any appearance of the supernatural. And even in regard to the physical death, that was also in a sense immediately executed. For though our first parents lived many years, they immediately began to grow old. 
Since the fall, life has become an unceasing march toward the grave. Says Charles Hodge, In the day in which Adam ate the forbidden fruit, he did die. The penalty threatened was not a momentary infliction, but permanent subjection to all the evils which flow from the righteous displeasure of God. Furthermore, the whole Christian world has believed that in the fall, Adam as the natural and federal head of the race injured not only himself, but all of his posterity, so that, as Dr. Hodge says, in virtue of the union, federal and natural, between Adam and his posterity, his sin, although not their act, is so imputed to them that it is the judicial ground of the penalty threatened against him coming also on them. To impute sin in scriptural and theological language is to impute the guilt of sin. And by guilt is meant not criminally or morally ill-desert or demerit, much less moral pollution, but the judicial obligation to satisfy justice. His sin is laid to their account. Even infants who have no personal sin of their own suffer pain and death. Now the scriptures uniformly represent suffering and death as the wages of sin. It would be unjust for God to execute the penalty on those who are not guilty. Since the penalty falls on infants, they must be guilty, and since they have not personally committed sin, they must be guilty of Adam's sin. All those who have inherited human nature from Adam were in him as the fruit of the germ, and have, as it were, grown up one person with him. By the fall, Adam was entirely and absolutely ruined. The state of original righteousness or holiness in which he was created was lost, and its place was taken by an overwhelming state of sin, which was brought about as effectively as one puncture of the eye involves the person in perpetual darkness. The wrath and curse of God rested upon him, and he was possessed with a sense of guilt, shame, pollution, degradation, a dread of punishment, and a desire to escape from the presence of God. In fact, there is a strict parallel between the way in which the guilt of Adam is imputed to us in that in which the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, so that the one illustrates the other. We were cursed through Adam and were redeemed through Christ, although we were of course no more personally guilty of Adam's sin than we are personally meritorious because of Christ's righteousness. It is utterly absurd to hold to salvation through Christ unless we also hold to damnation through Adam for Christianity is based on this representative principle. Unless the race had been cursed through Adam, there would have been no occasion for Christ to have redeemed it. The history of the fall, recorded in a manner at once profound and childlike in the third chapter of Genesis, has therefore universal significance. In Calvinism alone does justice to the idea of the organic unity of the human race, into the profound parallel which Paul draws between the first and the second Adam. 5. The forces of evil are under God's perfect control. We believe that God actually rules in the affairs of men, that his decrees are absolute and that they include all events. 
Consequently, we believe that nations and individuals are predestinated to all of every kind of good and evil which befalls them. When we get the larger view, we see that even the sinful acts of men have their place in the divine plan, and that it is only because of our finite and imperfect nature which does not comprehend all the relations and connections that these acts appear to be contrary to that plan. To illustrate this, when we see the sheet music running through the player piano, we readily understand how it is used, but if we were to find the same paper apart from the piano and have never seen it used, we might readily conclude that it was only wrapping paper, and poor wrapping paper at that, for it would be full of holes. Yet when it is put in its proper place, it produces the most beautiful music, Unless we do believe that God has ordained the whole course of events and that the courses he has outlined for our individual lives are good ones, we are certain to become discouraged in times of adversity. Like Jacob of old, who in the face of the apparent misfortunes immediately before meeting his favorite son Joseph, concluded, All these things are against me. We may become discouraged when perhaps at that very time the Lord is preparing great things for us. The scripture doctrine as stated before is that God restrains sin within certain limits, that he brings good out of intended evil and overrules the evil for his own glory. Since God is infinite in power and wisdom, sin could have no existence except by his permission. God was free to create or not to create, to create this particular world order or one entirely different. All evil forces are under his absolute control and could be blotted out of existence in an instant if he so willed. The murderer is kept in life and is indebted to God for the strength to kill his victim and also for the opportunity. When Jesus said, Get thee hence, Satan, Satan immediately went and when Jesus commanded the evil spirits to hold their peace and come out of the possessed persons, they immediately obeyed. The psalmist expressed his confidence in God's power to overrule sinners when contemplating their works, he wrote, He that sitteth in the heavens will laugh, the Lord will have them in derision. Chapter 2, verse 4. Job said, The deceived and the deceiver are his. Chapter 12, verse 16 by which he meant that both good and evil men are under God's providential control. Unless sin occurs according to the divine purpose and permission of God, it occurs by chance. Evil then becomes an independent and uncontrolled principle, and the pagan idea of dualism is introduced into the theory of the universe. The doctrine that there are powers of sin, rebellion, darkness, in the very nature of free agency, which may prove an overmatch for divine omnipotence, imperils even the eternal safety and happiness of the saints in glory. Luther expressed his belief concerning this question in the following words, What I assert and contend for is this, that God, where he operates without the grace of his Spirit, works all in all, even in the ungodly, and he alone moves acts on and carries along by the motion of his omnipotence all those things which he alone has created, which motion those things can neither avoid nor change, but of necessity follow and obey, 
each one according to the measure of power given of God. Thus all things, even the ungodly, cooperate with God. In Zanchius wrote, We should therefore be careful not to give up the omnipotence of God under a pretense of exalting His holiness. He is infinite in both, and therefore neither should be set aside or obscured. To say that God absolutely nils the being in commission of sin, while experience convinces us that sin is acted every day, is to represent the deity as a weak, impotent being who would fain have things go otherwise than they do, but cannot accomplish his desire. One of the best of more recent comments is that of E. W. Smith in his admirable little book, The Creed of Presbyterians. Did we believe that so potent and fearful a thing as sin had broken into the original holy order of the universe in defiance of God's purpose, and is rioting in defiance of his power, we might well surrender ourselves in terror and despair. Unspeakably comforting and strengthening is the scriptural assurance of our standards, chapter 5, verse 4, that beneath all this wild tossing and lashing of evil purposes and agencies, there lies in mighty and controlling embrace a divine purpose that governs them all. Over sin, as over all else, God reigns supreme. His sovereign providence extendeth to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, so that these are as truly parts and developments of his providence as are the movements of the stars or the activities of unfallen spirits in heaven itself. Having chosen for reasons most wise and holy, though unrevealed to us, to admit sin, he hath joined to this bare permission a most wise and powerful bounding of all sin, so that it can never overleap the lines which he has prescribed for its imprisonment, in such an ordering and governing of it as will secure his own holy ends and manifest in the final consummation not only his almighty power, but his unsearchable wisdom and his infinite goodness. And Floyd E. Hamilton has written, God created the human being with the possibility of sinning, and he has the power to interfere at any time to prevent the evil act. Even though he has no purpose to work out in the permission of the act, the very permission of the act, when he has the power to interfere, places the ultimate responsibility for the act squarely upon God. Moreover, if he has no purpose to work out, then he is certainly reprehensible in not preventing the act. It is attempted to avoid this conclusion by saying that God does not interfere because to do so would be to take away man's freedom. In that case, man's freedom is regarded as of more value than his eternal salvation. But even that does not remove the ultimate responsibility for the permission of the evil act from God. God has the power to prevent the evil act, has no purpose to work out in permitting it, but nevertheless in order to protect man's freedom allows man to bring eternal punishment upon himself. Assuredly that would be a poor kind of a God. Hence God himself is ultimately responsible for sin in that he has power to prevent it but does not do so, although the immediate responsibility rests on man alone. God is, of course, never the efficient cause of the production of sin. Augustine, 
Luther and Calvin often stressed this truth of God's full and sovereign control when providing that the present course of the world is the one which from eternity God planned that it should follow. 6. Sinful acts occur only by divine permission. The good acts of men then are rendered certain by the positive decree of God and the sinful acts occur only by his permission. Yet it is more than a bare permission by which the sinful acts occur for that would leave it uncertain whether or not they would be done. Concerning this subject, David F. Clark says, The most reasonable explanation is that the sinful nature will go to the boundary set by the permission of God. Hence God's bounding of sin renders certain what and how much will come to pass. Satan could go no farther with Job than God permitted, but it is certain that he would go as far as God allowed. And in accordance with this is the statement by W. D. Smith, when it is known certainly that it will be done unless prevented, and there is a determination not to prevent it, it is rendered as certain as if it were decreed to be done by positive agency. In the one case the event is rendered certain by agency put forth, and in the other case it is rendered equally certain by agency withheld. It is an unchangeable decree in both cases. The sin of Judas and the crucifixion of the Savior were as unchangeably decreed permissively as the coming of the Savior into the world was decreed positively. From this you can perceive the consistency of the confession of faith with common sense when it says that God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably foreordain whatsoever comes to pass, etc. You perceive also that this is clearly reconcilable with the following statement, He is not the author of sin, etc. Augustine expressed a similar thought when he said, Wherefore those mighty works of God, exquisitely perfect, according to every bent of his will, are such that, in a wonderful and ineffable way, that is not done without the will of God, which is even done contrary to his will, because it could not be done at all unless he permitted it to be done. And yet he does not permit unwillingly, but willingly. Nor as the God of goodness would he permit a thing to be done evilly, unless as the God of omnipotence he could work good even out of the evil done. Even the works of Satan are so controlled and limited that they serve God's purposes. When Satan eagerly desires the destruction of the wicked and diligently works to bring it about, yet the destruction proceeds from God. It is in the first place God who decrees that the wicked shall suffer and Satan is merely permitted to lay the punishment upon them. The motives which underlie God's purposes and those which underlie Satan's are, of course, infinitely different. God willed the destruction of Jerusalem. Satan also desired the same, yet for different reasons. As Augustine tells us, God wills with a good will that which Satan wills with an evil will, as was the case in the crucifixion of Christ, which was overruled for the redemption of the world. Sometimes God uses the wicked wills and passions of men rather than the good wills of his own servants to accomplish his purposes. 
This truth has been clearly expressed by Dr. Warfield in the following words. All things find their unity in his eternal plan, and not their unity merely, but their justification as well. Even the evil, though retaining its quality as evil and hateful to the holy God, is certain to be dealt with as hateful, yet does not occur apart from his provision or against his will, but appears in the world which he has made only as the instrument by means of which he works the higher good. 7. Scripture Proof That this is the doctrine of Scripture is abundantly plain. The sale of Joseph into Egypt by his brothers was a very wicked act, yet as we see that it was overruled not only for Joseph's good, but also for the good of the brothers themselves. When it is traced to its source, we see that God was the author. It had an exact place in the divine plan. Joseph later said to his brothers, And now be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And as for you, ye meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Genesis 45, verses 5 and 8, in chapter 50, verse 20. It is said that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, Exodus 4, verse 21, and chapter 9, verse 12. And the very words which God addressed to Pharaoh were, But in every deed for this cause have I made thee to stand, to show thee my power, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Exodus 9, verse 16. And to Moses God said, And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall go into the Red Sea after them, and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, and upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. Exodus 14, verse 17. Shimei cursed David, because Jehovah had said, Curse David. And when David knew this, he said, Let him alone, and let him curse, for Jehovah hath bidden him. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. And after David had suffered the unjust violence of his enemies, he recognized that God had done all this. Of the Canaanites it was said, And it was of Jehovah to harden their hearts to come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, that they might have no favor, and that he might destroy them, as Jehovah commanded Moses. Joshua 11, verse 20. Hophni and Phinehas, the two evil sons of Eli, hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because Jehovah was minded to slay them. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 25. Even Satan and the evil spirits are made to carry out the divine purpose. As an instrument of divine vengeance and the punishment of the wicked, an evil spirit was openly given the command to go and deceive the prophets of King Ahab. And Jehovah said, Who shall entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another on that manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before Jehovah, and said, I will entice him. And Jehovah said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt entice him, and shall prevail. Go forth and do so. Now therefore, said Micaiah, Behold, Jehovah hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and Jehovah hath spoken evil concerning thee. First Kings chapter 22, verses 20-23 through 23. 
Concerning Saul it is written, An evil spirit from Jehovah troubled him. 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 14 And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Judges 9 verse 23 Hence it is from Jehovah that evil spirits proceed to trouble sinners. And it is from him that the evil impulses which arise in the hearts of sinners take this or that specific form. 2 Samuel 24 verse 1 In one place we are told that God, in order to punish a rebellious people, moved the heart of David to number them. 2 Samuel 24 verses 1 and 10 But in another place where the same act is referred to, we are told that it was Satan who instigated David's pride and caused him to number them. First Chronicles chapter 21 verse 1 In this we see that Satan was made the rod of God's wrath and that God impels even the hearts of sinful men and demons whithersoever he will. While all adulterous and incestuous intercourse is abominable to God, he sometimes uses even such sins as these to punish other sins as was the case when he used such acts in Absalom to punish the adultery of David. Before Absalom had committed his sin, it was announced to David that this was the form which his punishment was to take. Thus saith Jehovah, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 11 Hence these acts were not in every way contrary to the will of God. In 1 Chronicles 10 verse 4 we read that Saul took a sword and fell upon it. This was his own deliberate sinful act. Yet it executed divine justice and fulfilled a divine purpose which was revealed years before concerning David. For a little later we read, So Saul died for his transgressions which he committed against Jehovah. He inquired not of Jehovah, therefore he slew him and turned the kingdom unto David the son of Jesse. 1 Chronicles 10 verse 14 There is a sense in which God is said to do what he permits or impels his creatures to do. The evil which was threatened against Jerusalem for her apostasy is described as directly sent of God. 2 Kings 22 verse 20 the psalmist recognized that even the hate of their enemies were stirred up by Jehovah to punish a rebellious people. Psalm 105 verse 25 Isaiah recognized that even the apostasy and disobedience of Israel was in the divine plan. O Jehovah, why dost thou make us to err from thy ways and hardenest our hearts from thy fear? Isaiah 63 verse 17 In 1 Chronicles 5 verse 22 we read, there fell many slain because the war was of Jehovah. Rehoboam's foolish curse which caused the disruption of the kingdom was a thing brought about by Jehovah. 1 Kings chapter 12 verse 15 All of these things are summed up in that passage of Isaiah. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I am Jehovah that doeth all these things. Chapter 45 verse 7 And again in Amos Shall evil befall a city, and Jehovah hath not done it? Amos 3, verse 6 When we come to the New Testament, we find the same doctrine set forth. We have already shown that the crucifixion of Christ was a part of the divine plan. Though slain by the hands of lawless men who did not understand the importance of the event which they were carrying out, 
the things which God foreshowed by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Acts 3 verse 18 The crucifixion was the cup which the Father had given him to drink. John 18.11 It was written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Matthew 26 verse 31 When Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Luke 9 verse 31 Concerning his own death, Jesus said, The Son of Man indeed goeth as it hath been determined, but woe unto that man through whom he is betrayed. Luke 22, verse 22. Again, did ye never read in the scriptures, The stone which the builders rejected, the same was made the head of the corner? This was from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Matthew 21, verse 42. And never did he teach more plainly that the cross was in the divine plan than when in the garden of Gethsemane he said, Not as I will, but as thou wilt. Matthew 26, verse 39. Jesus deliberately surrendered himself to be crucified when he might have called to his defense more than twelve legions of angels had he chosen to have done so. Matthew 26, verse 53. Pilate thought that he had power to crucify Jesus or to release him as he pleased, but Jesus told him he could have no power against him at all except it were given him from above. John 19, verse 10 and 11. It was the plan of God that Christ should come into the world, that he should suffer, that he should die a violent death, and thus make atonement for his people. Hence God simply permitted sinful men to sinfully lay that burden upon him and overruled their acts for his own glory in the redemption of the world. Those who crucified Christ acted in perfect harmony with the freedom of their own sinful natures and were alone responsible for their sin. On this occasion, as on many others, God has made the wrath of man to praise him. It would be hard to frame language which would more explicitly set forth the idea that God's plan extends to all things then is here used by the scripture writers. Hence the crucifixion on Calvary was not a defeat, but a victory, and the cry, It is finished, announced the successful achievement of the work of redemption which had been committed to the Son. That which stands written of Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures has its certain fulfillment in him, and that enough stands written of him there to assure his followers that in the course of his life, and in its, to them, strange and unexpected ending, he is not the prey of chance or the victim of the hatred of men, to the marring of his work or perhaps even the defeat of his mission, but was following step by step straight to its goal the predestined pathway marked out for him in the councils of eternity, and sufficiently revealed from of old in the scriptures to enable all who were not foolish and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, to perceive that Christ must needs have lived just as this life, and fulfilled just this destiny. Other events recorded in the New Testament also teach the same lesson. When God cast off the Jews as a people, it was not a purposeless destruction, nor in order merely that they might fall, but that by their fall salvation might come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy, so that they in turn shall also embrace Christianity. Romans 11 verse 11 
The blindness of one man is said to have been not because of his own or his parents' sin, but in order to give Jesus a chance to display his power and glory in restoring the sight, or, as the writer puts it, that the works of God should be made manifest in him. John 9, verse 3. The Old Testament statement that the very purpose which God had in raising up Pharaoh was to show his power and to publish abroad his name is repeated in Romans 9.17. This general teaching is climaxed with Paul's declaration that to them that love God all things work together for good, even to them that are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 No one can rationally deny that God foreordained sin if, as the scriptures assert, he foreordained the crucifixion of Christ and these other events to which we have referred. That sinful acts do have their place in the divine plan is repeatedly taught. And if any person is inclined to take offense at this, let them consider how many times the scriptures declare the judgments of God to be a great deep. Hence those who hastily charge that our doctrine makes God the author of sin bring that charge not only against us but against God himself. For our doctrine is the clearly revealed doctrine of the scriptures. 8. Comments by Smith and Hodge God's relation to sin is admirably illustrated in the following paragraph, which we shall take the liberty of quoting from W.D. Smith's little book, What is Calvinism? Suppose to yourself a neighbor who keeps a distillery or a dram shop, which is a nuisance to all around, neighbors collecting, drinking, and fighting on the Sabbath, with consequent misery and distress in families, etc., Suppose further that I am endowed with a certain foreknowledge and can see with absolute certainty a chain of events in connection with a plan of operation which I have in view for the good of that neighborhood. I see that by preaching there I will be made the instrument of the conversion and consequent reformation of the owner of the distillery, and I therefore determine to go. Now in so doing I positively decree the reformation of the man, that is, I determine to do what renders his reformation certain, and I will fulfill my decree by positive agency. But in looking a little further in the chain of events, I discover with the same absolute certainty that his drunken customers will be filled with wrath and much sin will be committed in venting their malice upon him and me. They will not only curse and blaspheme God and religion, but they will even burn his house and attempt to burn mine. Now you perceive that this evil which enters into my plan is not chargeable upon me at all, though I am the author of the plan which, in its operations, I know will produce it. Hence it is plain that any intelligent being may set on foot a plan and carry it out, in which he knows with absolute certainty that evil will enter and yet he is not the author of the evil, nor chargeable with it in any way. In looking a little further in the chain of events, I discover that if they be permitted, they will take his life, and I see moreover that if his life be spared, he will now be as notorious for good as he was for evil, and will prove a rich blessing to the neighborhood and to society. Therefore, upon the whole plan, I determined to act, and in so doing, I positively decree the reformation of that man and the consequent good, and I permissively decree the wicked actions of the others. Yet it is very plain 
that I am not in any way chargeable for their sins. Now in one or the other of these ways, God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And Charles Hodge says in this connection, A righteous judge in pronouncing sentence on a criminal may be sure that he will cause wicked and bitter feelings in the criminal's mind or in the hearts of his friends, and yet the judge be guiltless. A father, in excluding a reprobate son from his family, may see that the inevitable consequences of such exclusion may be his greater wickedness, and yet the father may do right. It is the certain consequence of God's leaving the fallen angels and the finally impenitent to themselves that they will continue in sin, and yet the holiness of God remain untarnished. The Bible clearly teaches that God judiciously abandons men to their sins, giving them up to a reprobate mind, and he therein is most just and holy. It is not true, therefore, that an agent is responsible for all the certain consequences of his acts. It may be, and doubtless is, infinitely wise and just in God to permit the occurrence of sin and to adopt a plan of which sin is a certain consequence or element. Yet, as he neither causes sin nor tempts men to its commission, he is neither its author nor approver. 9. God's grace is more deeply appreciated after the person has been the victim of sin. We are often permitted to fall into sin, that after being delivered from it, we shall appreciate our salvation all the more. In the parable of the two debtors, the one owed five hundred shillings and the other fifty. When they had nothing with which to pay, the lender forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, would love him most? Naturally, the one to whom he forgave most. As Jesus spoke this parable, they were seated at meat, and the application was made to Simon the Pharisee and to the penitent woman who had anointed his feet. The latter had been forgiven much and was profoundly grateful, but the former had received no such favor and felt no gratitude. To whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Luke 7, verse 41 through 50. Sometimes the person, like the prodigal son, will not appreciate the father's home, nor respect his authority, until he has experienced the ravaging effects of sin in the pangs of hunger, sorrow, and disgrace. It seems that man with his freedom must, to a certain extent, learn by experience before he is fully able to appreciate the ways of righteousness and to render unquestionable obedience and honor to God. We have quoted Paul's statement to the effect that God hath shut up all unto disobedience, that he might have mercy on all, Romans 11.32, and that the sentence of death was passed within us, that we should not trust in ourselves, but only in God, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com. 
by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.